This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, a program designed to help police respond to calls about mental illness. It's not a training program. Anybody can present a training program, but you've got to change the hearts of people. And I'm not just talking about law enforcement here. I'm talking about the hearts of the entire people within the community. And that's when you start making a difference. Crisis intervention teams, when Radio Health Journal returns. Many of us feel pressure to answer a text, call, or email in the car, but you might be surprised to find out who's pressuring us most. Hi, I'm Debbie Herzman, President of the National Safety Council, and this is your Safety Minute. According to a recent poll, 82% of Americans feel the most pressure from their families to drive distracted. It's ironic that our loved ones are the ones putting us at risk. Americans continue to drive distracted despite knowing the dangers. There are more ways than ever to stay connected on the road, including in-car systems. But at the National Safety Council, we know that hands-free is not risk-free. So let your loved ones know that you care. Don't use your phone while driving, and don't call or text them when they're behind the wheel. Let them get home safely. Safety Minute is brought to you by the National Safety Council. When people need help in the worst way, they often look to their local police department. We may call on them after our home has been robbed or when we need to get our keys out of a locked car. It's reassuring to know that a police officer is only a phone call away and ready to tackle the job. However, when that phone call involves a mentally ill person in severe distress having a mental health crisis, things can quickly take a turn for the worse. Emotion, miscommunication, and fear on both sides can combine to create a situation that's unsafe for everyone involved. One of the things that you know we found through 25 years of working with law enforcement agencies is that people with mental illness often respond very differently to police commands and police presence than your average citizen. People can get very frightened, and that can actually escalate their behavior or their emotions. So making someone who maybe wasn't being violent but was just very upset to get scared and then lash out at the officer or to hurt themselves. That's Laura Usher, Crisis Intervention Team Program Manager at the National Alliance on Mental Illness, or NAMI. She says police officers deal with mental health crises more frequently than most people think. Calls involving people with mental illness in crisis are surprisingly common. Something like 10 to 12 percent of calls for service to law enforcement involve a mental health issue. And most of these calls will resolve in a peaceful and uncomplicated way, but a few of them sort of spiral out of control into violent encounters. When that happens, Usher says, unfortunately, it's often exactly what a mentally ill subject wants. A lot of these calls are related to suicide attempts. Either the individual is attempting suicide or thinking about suicide or is hoping to provoke an officer to shoot. That's a phenomenon we call suicide by cop. And then other calls involve a person with mental illness who is having hallucinations or delusions or it's just their behavior is unusual to the people around them or concerning to the people around them. A lot of these calls actually originate from the family of the person in crisis. They know their loved one well and they know that the person is in crisis and they don't really have a lot of options for places to call for help, so they wind up calling the police. Mental illness comes in a variety of forms. Disorders such as schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and post-traumatic stress disorder all look different. 
Mary Neal, director and founder of the group Assistance to the Incarcerated Mentally Ill, says that can make it difficult for a police officer to properly evaluate the situation and choose what action to take. A lot of times we see films of mentally ill people being harmed by police officers on YouTube and other social networks, and we may say, well, why didn't he stop when the police told him to stop? The thing is that when you and I hear a police officer say halt, we recognize this as being a voice of authority. If a person is in the middle of a mental health crisis, which is most often the case when police are called, they may hallucinate and they may see that police officer who is approaching them and saying halt. They may not even see that person as a police officer. Because hallucinations to people with advanced mental illness are as real as what you and I see and we know to be real. Crisis intervention teams, or CIT, were developed to help police deal with exactly those kind of situations. The first such program was started in Memphis in 1987 after police shot and killed a mentally ill subject brandishing a knife. The man had been ordered to drop his weapon but became more agitated instead. CIT aims to educate police officers about mental illnesses and provide ways to address them without escalating a situation into a violent conflict. Randolph DuPont is a clinical psychologist and professor of criminal justice at the University of Memphis who's been working on CIT training since its inception. He says the program gives officers the tools required to effectively serve the needs of the mentally ill and still keep the public safe. The main thing you hear, first of all, is that the officers approach the scene in a strategic way. That is, that they consult with each other, they develop a strategy. The second thing is, is they're more likely to gather additional information that is going to help them in the intervention. And what we hear consistently from those that have mental illness is that the officers are much more likely also to be serious with them, because even though the person is going through a crisis, often they're still able to communicate, and sometimes the crisis might have some very reasonable things that form the basis of that crisis, and the officers can address those things in a way that people don't always expect is possible. Ideally, Usher says, a police force will have at least one trained CIT officer on each shift. For some departments, that may mean that all officers are trained, while for larger departments, only a fraction will require training and be called to the scene as needed. CIT training itself is a mixture of mental illness awareness and scenario-based simulation where officers learn how to recognize mental health symptoms. Training also helps to foster relationships between police officers and people who have a mental illness. The bulk of the time, though, is spent in sort of practical application. So the officers spend a lot of time interacting with people with mental illness who are not in a crisis situation. They sit down with them and talk about boyfriends, girlfriends, hobbies, jobs, just ordinary everyday things to kind of demystify the person living with a mental illness and also to help build a little bit of a relationship so that a person with mental illness who maybe was part of this group isn't scared to call the police and so that the police aren't scared of the person with mental illness. And then there's also a lot of time dedicated to scenario-based trainings where the officers will be set up with a scenario and then simulating a mental health crisis and the officer has to use their skills to help calm that person down. CIT also connects police officers to resources such as therapists and mental hospitals where they may be able to refer a person instead of arresting them. One of the last pieces is interaction with advocacy organizations like local NAMI affiliate organizations where the officers learn about what are the resources in their community 
can they call on one of these organizations to provide support or education to some of the people that they're encountering in crisis or to their families? Can they call on mental health services and who's available at three in the morning? What service is available on the weekend? It's this preparation that allows officers to de-escalate situations effectively. Usher says it's resulted in measurable improvements in the outcomes of police responses to mental health crises. Officer injuries in responding to mental health calls have dropped by 80% in Memphis, which is where the first CIT program started. And in other communities, they've documented that people with mental illness who encounter a CIT officer spend on average two more months in the community than someone who may have encountered an untrained officer. And when I say time in the community, that means that the person received more counseling and more medication and they were less likely to be in jail or in the hospital. That's progress, but Neil says there's still room for improvement in the way police departments and correctional facilities handle people with mental illness. These people are under serious hallucinations. They are not and should not be held criminally responsible for their reactions to police officers and every avenue to save their lives, every avenue to prevent catastrophic harm must be employed. And so I feel that crisis intervention training will help to make that more possible. However, I want to interject that police officers must be held accountable for the training that they've already received, and they must be held accountable even to a higher level of accountability once they complete crisis intervention training. A lot of the deaths and serious injuries to mentally ill people are not the result of a lack of training, but they're the result of a lack of appropriate action by police officers and prison corrections according to what they already know to be right and wrong protocol. Communities and counties are now coming together in meetings and in task force and committees to examine, okay, what is CIT? And one of the discoveries that they're going to have is that CIT is more than just training. That's Sam Cochran, a retired major in the Memphis Police Department who coordinated its CIT program for 20 years. Now he's project coordinator at the University of Memphis CIT Center. During Cochran's tenure at the helm of the Memphis program, it developed into a blueprint for similar programs across the country. What we have discovered over the many years that a better CIT program is one that engages in a significant community effort. The crisis intervention team or the CIT program should be considered as a community program and not just a law enforcement program. Cochran says CIT brings together three prongs of the community the local police department, the local mental health agency, and advocacy organizations who represent mentally ill people and their families. There needs to be avenues by which law enforcement officers can divert an individual into the community without criminal charges being attached. When I say CIT is more than just training, that's part of the more, is being able to make sure that we are giving that level of care in a balanced way. Okay, we have a person that has a mental illness and that person is creating some type of uh, minor disturbance in the public that technically, within the letter of the law, could be charged with a disorderly conduct or a criminal trespass or disturbance of the peace. 
I'd also like for that officer to have an understanding of the resources and the availability of those resources to divert that individual back to the community to say, okay, let's see what we can do to get this individual back to a pre-crisis level without having criminal charges attached to the individual. According to DuPont, many of us have misconceptions about mental illness and police are just as subject to them as the rest of us. For example, Neil says it's only natural for an officer to be fearful and assume that there may be danger if someone's taken the trouble of calling for police. DuPont says proper training and public awareness are key to reaching out to people who suffer from mental illness. One thing that's, I think, important is to understand that often those of us that may not have experienced a serious mental illness, we view mental illness as something that's just a matter of degree. Well, it's a bit worse or it's a little different. Uh, individuals that experience serious mental illness or experience a qualitative difference in the way that the world is seen and what's going on. It's very challenging, and it's not something I think you or I, unless we've had very unique experiences, can fully comprehend. So it's easy to sort of for people to misjudge it. You can learn more about all of our guests by visiting our website at RadioHealthJournal.net. Our writer-producer this week is Eli Murray. I'm Reed Pence. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. Nearly everyone uses ladders to reach high closet shelves, clean gutters, or hang holiday lights. But each year, thousands of ladder-related injuries require medical treatment in the U.S. Cuts, broken bones, and ankle injuries are very common. Dr. Jeffrey Johnson, an orthopedic surgeon and president of the American Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society, says many of those injuries can be prevented by following a few basic guidelines. First, check the ladder for any loose screws, hinges, or rungs. On a step ladder, the highest standing level should be two steps down from the top, and on a single or extension ladder, never stand above the third rung from the top. Always wear lace-up shoes or boots rather than sandals, flip-flops, or slippers, and never lean too far to the side. You may lose your balance. Keep your center of gravity as close to the ladder as possible. And a good rule of thumb is that your belly button should never go beyond the sides of the ladder. Using a ladder might seem easy, but misusing one is even easier. Don't let a do-it-yourself project do yourself in. Find out more safety tips at orthoinfo.org slash ladder safety. That's orthoinfo.org slash ladder safety. Medical notes this week. If you use antibacterial soap, the formula is about to change. The FDA has banned 19 different antibacterial chemicals found in about 40% of all soaps, saying they do more harm than good. Public health experts have long claimed that plain soap and water are just as effective, while antimicrobial soaps encourage antibacterial resistance and may disrupt hormones. Soap makers have a year to get the chemicals out of their products. Predicting who will get Alzheimer's disease isn't possible yet, but a blood test could make it happen before long. Researchers writing in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease gave a blood test to a group of older people with mild memory problems. They found that high levels of three specific proteins were 85% accurate in predicting which of them would progress to Alzheimer's disease. An accurate prediction would enable early treatment. And finally, police may soon be getting the equivalent of a breathalyzer test for stone drivers. Up to now, they've had no way to quickly screen drivers for marijuana intoxication, but Stanford University scientists write in the journal Analytical Chemistry that they've created such a test. It's a spit test based on cancer screening. More than 20 states now allow some form of marijuana use, but most of them haven't set a definition for what constitutes being stoned. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. 
As temperatures drop, are you among those who look forward to covering up unsightly bruises with sweaters and pants? Don't let your fall wardrobe be an excuse to leave bruises untreated. According to dermatologist Dr. Helen Torok, bruises happen for many reasons and may become more abundant as you age. To help correct this problem, Dr. Torok recommends incorporating Dermend Moisturizing Bruise Formula into your daily skincare regimen. Over time, skin can lose its firmness and elasticity due to a variety of factors, including medication, such as blood thinners, sun damage, heredity, or simply getting older. So building a stronger skin barrier early on is often very helpful. Dermend Moisturizing Bruise Formula contains targeted ingredients such as ceramides, retinol, arnica oil, and glycolic acid that work together to rejuvenate and help restore skin's natural barrier. Dermatologists report that it helps improve the appearance of bruises and boosts moisture and suppleness. For more information, visit Dermend.com. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTrax Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.